We're going into the book of Zephaniah, Zephaniah, and uh, it's a great little book, uh, three chapters long. We are almost done with the Old Testament. After today, we will have three more books left to finish off the Old Testament. Zephaniah lived around the same time as Jeremiah, and their names rhyme. It's great, because the ayah at the end is a reference to God. And, um, and, and so uh, Zephaniah lived around the same time as Jeremiah, which means, in case you've forgotten, that he was, Jeremiah and Zephaniah, he was prophesying just a little bit before, and, and Jeremiah before and kind of during, uh, 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 when, when Judah and Jerusalem were conquered, and then they went into exile. So Zephaniah uh, starts speaking about 50 or 60 years before and continues prophesying right around to about 20 years before uh, Judah was conquered, okay? So that's about the timeline of Zephaniah. So he's leading up to kind of the invasion and, and what was going to happen. Now this book is a book, these, these three chapters, these prophetic words are words that were about Judah but some other nations as well. And um, today, I am hoping to change, convince some people uh, regarding a wrong perspective that some people have about God. And, and I think that as I preach, there will be some people in the room that, uh, that agree with me, and there might be some others that need to be convinced and We'll see how I do and how God helps me today. We'll see how this goes. And uh, the title of today's message is this, I am his delight. Would you say that with me, everybody? I am his delight. Look at somebody and tell them you are, you know what to say. You are what? His delight. You are his delight. All right, so as we get into Zephaniah chapter 2, starting in verse 4, um, interestingly enough, we actually have mention of a city that is literally in the news this weekend. Zephaniah 2, verse 4. Gaza and Ashkelon. Now, Gaza in the, that season is not necessarily equivalent. It is geographically, but not population-wise. Uh, uh, it's not equivalent to the Gaza of today. But Gaza and Ashkelon will be, what does it say right there? Abandoned. Ashdod and Ekron, what will happen to them? They'll be torn down. Now, now, just so you know, you can read all of chapter 2. In chapter 1, God is talking about his judgment over Israel or Judah. In chapter 2, God is bringing his judgment over other nations, other places. And uh, Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, Ekron. Not only there, Moab and Ammon and Ethiopia, or the area that is Ethiopia, and Assyria, or specifically Nineveh. God mentions all of these places in chapter 2. Um, but I really just want to focus on these verses. And what sorrow awaits you, verse 5, Philistines who live along the coast and in the land of Canaan, for this judgment is against you too. The Lord will do what with you? destroy you until, what does he say? Not one of you is what? Left. All right. Does anybody have any Philistine Facebook friends or Instagram, you know, people that you follow? 
Yeah, didn't think so. All right. Um, God always fulfills his word. And he said that they would be gone, and they are gone. The Philistines no longer live today. The Philistine coast will become a wilderness pasture. And we're going to begin to see here how the blessing of God comes in. A place of shepherd camps and enclosures for sheep and goats. And then he goes on to say, the remnant of the tribe of Judah will pasture there. They will, what does it say right there? Rest. Everybody repeat that word one more time. Rest. They will rest. How many believe that God gives us rest? They will rest at night in the abandoned houses in where? Ashkelon. Wait, this is important. Go back to verse 4 if you could. Because what, what did it say again in verse 4? Gaza and Ashkelon will be what? Abandoned. This actually, you can go back to verse 7. This actually gives us an important truth about God, which, by the way, is repeated throughout the Bible, not only here, but, but here you can kind of see it, that God is a God that blesses his children. And one of the ways that he blesses his children is he takes the riches of the enemy and he gives it to his kids. And you need to understand this. This is the way that God works. God removes the people of Ashkelon. They abandon their houses. They're all out of there. And then God's like, hey, so the remnant of the tribe of Judah, you're going to go and you're going to get the houses that they left. It's kind of like God going, hey, by the way, so when Bel Air gets emptied out, all those houses are yours, you know? Um, you're like, praise the Lord, right? Uh, I'm not calling anybody in Bel Air our enemies, by the way, um, I know people there, so, um, but God has a way of taking the enemy's resources and bringing them into his kingdom and his family for the blessing of his children. It is good to be a son or daughter of God. They will rest at night in the abandoned houses in Ashkelon for the Lord, their God will visit his people. What will God do? He will what? Visit his people. In kindness and restore their prosperity again. How many people in this room have failed? Anybody failed? Anybody failed recently? Yeah. Anybody failed this morning on your way to church or before or something like that? Don't want to admit to it. You're like, that's too recent of a failure. I want to admit to. I'm fine with the failure from like a week ago, but not today's. We all fail. How, how many have sinned in the room? Any sinners? Any sinners? Really good-looking sinners in the room today. All right. All right. So we're all saints and sinners, sinners who are saints. And uh, and all right. So, so we, we have all, right, screwed up. We have all messed up. And are there consequences to our sin? Oh, absolutely, right? Because Scripture is very clear. You reap what you sow, right? So what you put in is what you're going to get out. And so we definitely experience consequences to sin. That is real, right? You lie long enough, eventually the lies catch up to you. You can get into trouble. You commit crimes. You can go to jail. You, um, you, you get into arguments and treat a friend bad. You can lose the relationship, right? There are natural consequences to sin. And there's also, by the way, supernatural consequences to sin, right? Uh, the scripture says uh, through the Apostle Paul, in your anger, do not give the enemy 
a foothold, right? So you can't even, in your reactions, give space to the enemy of our souls to operate in our lives. So there are natural and supernatural consequences to sin. But I do want you to understand something right now, that God has always been, always will be a restoring God. And even when you have screwed up, even when you have messed up, even when you have lost out and missed out and all of that, he can restore, as he says, your prosperity again. Your soul can prosper again. Relationships can prosper again. God is a God who restores. And it's so important to believe that about God. That while we do suffer consequences, he's a good God. And he will do what he has said he will do. So I want to go to Zephaniah chapter 3. And we're going to spend our time focused here. Real quick, not on the screen, not in the bulletin. I want to start in verse 14. Just listen to this. Or if you got your Bible open with you, you can, you, you can see it as I read. And he says... Sing, O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O Israel, be glad, somebody say be glad, and then he says rejoice, somebody say rejoice, be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem, for the Lord will remove his hand of judgment and will disperse the armies of your enemy, and the Lord himself, the King of Israel, will live among you will live among you. Say it with me. God is living among us. Does anybody believe that? You, you, you need to understand this. Because if you don't believe this, it will change how you walk with God. God is always with us. In every moment. And so he says, he'll live among you. At last your troubles will be over. And you will never again fear disaster. That, that, that'll be fantastic when that day comes. Who is looking forward to the day when our troubles are over? When we don't wake up to the news of attacks that are happening. When we no longer have something like a 9-11 that we had here in this country. When we no longer wake up to news of death and disease in our families. When we no longer have to deal with broken relationships. When, when all of that stuff is gone, is anybody hopeful for the day when that happens? I am hopeful for that day. But I want to start in verse 16 here on the screen and in the bulletin. And, and let's see what God says. On that day, the announcement to Jerusalem will be, cheer up, Zion. Don't be afraid, for the Lord your God is living among you. Everybody read the rest of the verse with me. What does he say? He is a mighty Savior. He will take delight in you with gladness. With his love, he will calm all your fears. He will rejoice over you with joyful songs. He will rejoice over you with joyful songs. If you need a good verse to memorize, Zephaniah 3.17 is a good one. I want to dive into this. This is the principal verse I want to share with you today. 
and what I believe the Lord wants to speak to us today. You see, God is living among his people, as scripture says, where two or three are gathered in his name. There he is. There I am, he says, in the midst of you. And how many know that we got way more than two or three in this place and that we are gathered in the name of Jesus? And so he is present among his people. But because his spirit dwells in us, he is always present with us in every moment. Let me be clear about something. God does not just show up because we have more than two or three. God shows up because you show up filled with the presence of the living God inside of you. And because you come with God's presence, and all of us do, then God shows up powerfully in this place. And so... He is living among us. And not only that, he is a mighty Savior. Somebody say he's a mighty Savior. You believe he's a mighty Savior? Now, usually when you think about the word mighty, you're going to think strong, like he can lift up some big rocks or he bench presses 300 pounds or, you know, he's a mighty Savior. But, but the word mighty here in the Hebrew gives the idea that he is like a warrior, Mighty like a warrior. So he is the savior warrior or the warrior savior. He is the one that comes in as the savior and wins the victory for you and in your life. So he's not just the savior that comes in and dies. He's the, also the savior that comes in and defeats the powers of the enemy, yes, through his death, and then also resurrects from the dead, proving his power over death. He is the Savior who is always victorious. You're on the right team. You really are. He's a mighty Savior. And then it says this. He will take what? He will take what? Delight. Everybody say that word, delight. He will take delight in you with gladness. He will take delight in you with gladness. The word delight here is the word cheerful. You know what a cheerful person is like? How many of you, when you wake up in the morning, you're the exact opposite of cheerful? Until you've been awake for a solid hour and you've had... 10 cups of coffee, and then all of a sudden, a smile begins to crack on your face, right? Anybody know what I'm talking about? Would you self-admit to being that person? Anybody in the room? Oh, there, there's a few people that are honest. All right, all right, all right. And, and how many of you are the cheerful people? You like wake up, and there's, I mean, you already had the smile on your face before you woke up. And then by the time you wake up, it's just even bigger. It's like you, your dreams every night are like fluffy clouds and flowers and mountains and rivers and streams. And that's just all it is. And you just wake up and everything's amazing. Like, praise God. You just wake up going, God is so good today. And especially if you're married, you're like, oh, would you look at the beautiful trees? Like, Don't wake me up. Right? That cheerful type of attitude, that that's actually what this word means. That when God looks at you, it makes him happy. He's like, this is the best time of my life to look at you. 
What's an example of this? Well, if you've had kids, or if you have kids, um, when they were babies, how many of you parents in the room while they were sleeping would just kind of stare at them and just smile? Anybody know what I'm talking about? And you're just there. And, um, and by the way, they do nothing for you. All they do is eat, sleep, cry, and go to the bathroom. That's it. Those four. They, they, they're not cleaning dishes for you. They're not picking up the room. They can't even clean themselves, obviously. But man, you stare at them and you've got a smile on your face. You take delight in that child. And in the same way, sons and daughters of God here and online, your Savior delights in you with gladness. You believe that? Come on, somebody. And this is who God is, and this is how God is. And then he says, with his love, he will calm all your fears. Why? Because the love, perfect love, and who has perfect love? Only God. The perfect love of God casts out all fear. With his love, he will calm all your fears. And then it says, he will rejoice. Somebody say, he will rejoice. Come on, say it again. He will rejoice. He will rejoice over you with joyful songs. So God sings over you. He sings over you. Oh, what a good God. But, but I love this word rejoice. Because this word rejoice uh, is not directly translated rejoice. This word is actually, what it actually means is to Turn around. Everybody say that with me. Say, turn around. Or, or to, better said, spin around. Because you can turn slowly, but when you spin, it's fast, right? So to spin around. And, and the idea of the word here is that you spin around due to, a, listen to this, a violent emotion. Now, don't take the word violent wrong. The, the idea here of violence is the strength. Imagine the strength that is involved. So an emotion that you feel very strongly. Now this word can be used in the negative and it can be used in the positive. On, on the negative side, it can be used like this, like when you all of a sudden feel fear because you see a bear in the woods and so your natural, hopefully, human reaction is to spin around and do what? Run. They are faster than you, but, you know, try. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, actually, what you're actually told to do is typically stay in the same space and lift up your arms and make yourself bigger than you are and yell really loud, and supposedly that's supposed to scare it. So, you know, th that's what they usually say to do. But typically, you see a bear, you see a fox, you see a whatever, you see a spider, you... <laughs> Those little things, yeah, those ones. Um, but you turn around and you run. And uh, I, I, I know this to be true because in my house, there's a few people, they will go unnamed, okay? But a few people that all of a sudden there's a death scream. And um, usually when there's a death scream, it's because there's a cockroach or a spider or sometimes just a fly, okay? So uh, that's what's going on. But, but, but anyways, uh, you, you turn around 
and you run. Your violent emotion there is fear. And you have so much fear. The fear is strong that you turn around, you spin around, you run away, right? But, but, but it is not only used in the negative. It's also used in the positive. And so what is the spinning around in the positive? Well, let's imagine that you are so filled with joy because he delights in us. He is cheerful and, and he, he, he sees us with gladness and he wants to sing songs over us. He is so filled with joy that he spins around. Why in the world do you spin around with joy very typically? Because you start dancing. You see, when you spin around for fear, you'll typically spin around 180 degrees. You only go halfway. But if you're joyful, watch this, you're not going to spin around and turn your back to the person. I love you so much that I can't look at you anymore. Like that, that's not what you're doing. When you're joyful, you're spinning completely around. Okay, I'm not going to dance, all right? But you're spinning completely around. And it's this beautiful picture of how God enjoys his children. I am his delight. You are his delight. He looks at you and he is filled with joy and gladness and happiness. How many want to know a God like that? But I want you to track with me just for a second here. Because I asked you before how many of you are sinners and you know everybody, all of us raised our hand. And, and the reality of it is this, that, that God is a God who right here in this book in Zephaniah is saying to the people of Israel that are going to be conquered just a few years later, just a few decades later. He, he's saying to Israel, the people that are going to go into exile, he is telling them that he delights in them. He is telling these people that are going to commit their last season of sin before their destruction, that he delights in his children. This is powerful. I, I want you to think about this in, in, in this way. That Jesus had 12 disciples and there was one who betrayed him. What was his name? Judas. And there was one who denied him. And what was his name? Peter. And Jesus, on the night when he was taken, he sat down. And he had dinner with his disciples, knowing what Peter was going to do, knowing what Judas was going to do. For the record, especially for those of you that are parents in the room, if you were upset at your child for something they have done and you were like really upset, you might just tell them to go to the room for the night and be like, no dinner for you. But here is God. Knowing that one of his disciples will deny him. Knowing that one of his disciples will betray him. And he is sitting at the table and he institutes the practice of communion. The cup and the bread. His body and the blood. And he drinks with the betrayer. And he eats with 
the betrayer. And if you read the story, Jesus is not angry. Oh yes, he does say, one of you is going to betray me. But he's not angry. He sits there in all of it. All of the sin that is about to be committed against him. All that's going to lead to his death. And he sits there and he calmly, comfortably eats with those that would betray and deny him. And by the way, it wasn't just those two. He's the other ones were scattered. They ran away. Once Jesus is arrested, they're like, see, I wouldn't want to be you. you know, they're, they're out of there. That's from like the 1990s. Seriously. Okay. Yet he sits at the same table and he eats with those who would sin against him. Can I just tell you today that a lot of us have a perspective about God that says something like this, and it's a wrong perspective. Every time I sin, God is angry with me. Every time I sin, God is mad at me. You, you need to track with what I am saying this morning and get this, because if you get this into your heart and into your mind and how you live, it will change your life. I guarantee it. Because you, you live with this belief that, that, that every time you screw up, obviously God must be mad that I have screwed up. And so you wake up in the morning, especially if you're one of the angry ones, right? And you wake up in the morning, and the first thing you do after a couple minutes, you like yell at somebody or snap back at somebody. And so at 7.02 in the morning, you snap at somebody. You're like, oh, I just screwed up. God is mad at me. So then at 7.05, you go and you ask forgiveness of the person. And then you go, oh, God is happy now because I asked forgiveness. And, and then at 7.10 in the morning, you're, you're trying to figure out what clothes you're going to wear. But none of them fit properly. Anybody have that situation? And you're looking in the mirror and you punch the mirror. And now you're like, oh, I just screwed up. And I overreacted and God is mad at me again at 7.10 in the morning. And then at 7.11 in the morning, you say, God, I'm sorry, I screwed up. I overreacted. And, and now you're like, okay, I feel good. God is happy with me again. And then at 7.20 in the morning, you're trying to make your coffee, but the darn machine is taking too long. And you're like, come on. And then God's mad at me all over again. And then I ask God forgiveness again at 7.22 in the morning when it finally finishes two minutes later. And God is happy, man. Then at 7.30, you leave your house and you get in the car. And of course, because you're running a couple minutes late, there's always a person that instead of going through the yellow, they stopped before it turned red. Anybody with me? And so you start yelling in your car. And then God is mad at me again. And two minutes later, you're like, oh, I'm sorry, God. And so now God is happy at me again. God is not schizophrenic, my friends. And imagine God doing that with 8 billion people on the planet. I mean, that's a disaster. God, are you like angry, mad, happy, lost, all of that, all at the same time? Like, no. And some of us have grown to believe 
that God is angry because we think that it might do a good job at keeping us from sinning more. Stay with me here. Because if God is angry, then my motivation is to keep God what? Happy. So I'll stop sinning so God stays what? Happy with me. And, and, and it's, it's almost a, too crazy of a thought to believe that even in my darkest hours, I still have a God who delights in me. And then some of you are sitting here going, yeah, yeah, but then how is the person going to change? I mean, can't they just take advantage of God's happiness, of God's grace, and keep on sinning? Yes. Yeah, you could take advantage of it. Should you? No. But can you? Yes. Well, what's your proof then that God is happy? My, my friends, even Paul the Apostle had to tell people, do not take God's grace as license to continue in sin. Might I ask you this question? Why did Paul have to tell people to not use God's grace to sin? Because God's grace is so huge and so majestic and so high up that there are some people who will leverage His grace to keep on sinning. But that is not proof that God is angry. In fact, it proves even more that God delights in his children. God is a good God. But what happens is we use this as a leverage. And oh my gosh, I have lived this way. Okay, this happens with me as a pastor. <clears throat> it happens with police. And it happens with a few others, you know. It's kind of like this. The parent is here at church and They've got their four-year-old sitting next to them. And the four-year-old starts talking too much and moving around too much. And the parent is like, you need to calm down or the pastor's gonna be mad at you. There was literally one time I was in a service year, 15 years ago and I'm sitting all the way in the back, all the way in the back. By the way, anybody who sits in the back, I love you. I love the back too, okay? I have to sit in the front because I'm pastor. All right, but, but, but I love the back. Back is beautiful. And, um, and, and, and so anyway, so I, I'm sitting in the back. I had nothing to do in that service, so I'm just sitting there enjoying the service as a pastor, and, and I'm in the back, and like three seats down, there is literally a mom with her kid, and she starts telling her kid to start behaving or Pastor Jeff will get mad at you. And I'm like, what in the world? Do not use me as a weapon against your child. In fact, if your child is happy and talking, I want to get to know him. And by the way, just for the record, I love having kids in our church. And we got a great V the kids. And it's good for them to grow and learn and know how to walk with Jesus. Very, very important. And we got a great team that does it. But anytime that there's like a baby in the room or whatever, and they start crying, I'm a happy guy. Because there is babies in the room. There's life in this place. And that is a good church to be in. Is a place where there is life, all right? So none of that is ever a bug to me. I want you to know that. I know that sometimes you then end up walking out for a few minutes or whatever. But there's never any shame for us or any blame for us. Kids are kids and babies are babies. And we love them in this church. Is everybody with me? 
All right, but, but, but you get used, right, as the weapon. This happens in the restaurants too, right? And you know who the weapon is? It's the, it's the waiter. And so the parent to their kid is like, you need to like sit down and be quiet. Look, the waiter's coming right now. They're, they're gonna. And some of us end up using God in this same way. You need to stop sinning because God's gonna be angry with you. Now, let me be very clear. I've preached on how powerful God is and how much he is worthy to be honored and praised and respected. Oh, don't get me wrong. We will never diminish who God is. He is the most powerful. He is the sovereign God. He is above all things and over all things and in all things. He is God worthy to be praised. We will never back away from that. But my friends, the solution to your sin is not to fear God, but is to draw closer to God. Is anybody with me on that? Now watch this. But what happens when you believe that God is an angry God? Stay with me here. You will not draw closer to that God. No, you won't. You will get further from that God, and then you will enter into further sin as a result. So my friends, my God, your God, he's a good God. And because he's good, he wants you to come closer to him. He wants you to come into all that he has for you, leaving behind the other things that you had. Taste and see that the Lord is good, and he is good. Come on, we can give an applause to God right now. I'm almost done, but not there yet. I am suggesting to you that God is not angry with you, his child, even when you mess up. Oh, that's too easy, Pastor Jeff. Well, tell that to the Apostle Paul, because he understood the grace of God to be that amazing as well. You see, verse 17 actually looks like this. For the Lord your God is living among you. He's right here. Not far off, not busy doing something. He is living. He's, he's, he's right here. And by the way, living is like he's got a bed and a refrigerator and a desk. He's like got a TV like he is living this is his home he's not visiting he is what living and he is living among you and as he is living he is our what mighty Savior our warrior Savior so the God who comes in and lives among us saves us defeating the power of death defeating the power of sin defeating all brokenness healing us saving us while he is among us he is doing this work isn't anybody grateful for the work that he is doing while he is among us right and he does it victoriously in our lives and then while he is among us, this God who takes our sin away looks at us, the ones he has saved, and he smiles. And while he is here among us, smiling at us, 
it says right here, with his love, he will calm all your fear. Because if my God is angry, I'm afraid of him. And so God is among us, and, and, and I'm here, and I have screwed up. I have screwed up big time. And I look at God, and he's, he's smiling at me. And I go, God, no, 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 you can't be smiling. I, I have screwed up. You're about to get angry. I know it's going to happen. And he just looks at you, and he keeps on smiling. And you go, but no, but I am not worthy. I, I have done so many. How can you? Everybody in my life gets angry at me when I mess up. My boss does. My parents do. Everybody else does. How can you be smiling at me right now? But you're, you're still smiling. You're Why are you still smiling at me? And little by little, the love of God begins to wash away all of my fear, all of my shame, all my mistakes. And I realize I don't need to walk away from this God. He's a good God. And then eventually, as I receive the work of God in my heart, as he removes all my fear, God sees his child joyful, his child safe, his child good again. And what does God do at that point? He starts dancing and singing because his child is no longer afraid. My friends, this is how God acts towards his children. This is what God does with us. Stop being afraid of God. Oh, he is worthy to be respected and honored. We bow down before him because he is worthy. He is the Lord most high. But he, that same Lord, is the Lord that is among us, smiling at us, joyfully watching us, delighting in us as children. Would you stand up with me today? <clears throat> There's some people that use the anger of God to attempt to get people to stop sinning. Let me tell you right now, I want to stop sinning, and I want you to stop sinning. But it is not the anger of God that will lead you there. It is the goodness of God that will lead you there. It is the joy of God that will lead you there. It is all the amazing, beautiful, wonderful things of God, of who He is and what He does that will lead you to a life of freedom from all sin. Draw closer to Jesus. Because guess what? He took a prodigal son, a prodigal son who had just been with a bunch of pigs, who had been in the mud, and that son comes home. And for Jewish people, pigs were unclean. You don't touch them. You don't raise them. 
You don't feed them, and you definitely don't get in the mud with them. But this son comes home all dirty, all messed up, completely unclean. And what does his father do? Go take a shower for no. No, this father runs out to him with open arms and he embraces his dirty son because our God is the one that takes the dirt off of us and he placed it onto him, onto the cross, so we might be clean. Do not run away from that God. He is the only good God there is. And so, Jesus, today, we thank you. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you have done. And we thank you for what you are doing. And, Lord, we want to be a people who see you rightly, who engage you correctly, who understand who you are and all that you do. And if you want to be a person that transitions into a new way of seeing your Father, would you right, right, get your hand up in the air if that's what you want to do in this moment. I can't talk, but you know what I'm talking about. And in this moment, Lord God, may you cause for these hearts and these minds to begin to see you as you really are that they would no longer be run or controlled or manipulated by some other perspective that is not what your word declares. Today, I say, you are free. You are free in Jesus' name to engage your Father, to walk in His love, to live in His delight as a child of God. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Can we give an applause to God?